Hello and welcome to part 8 of 12 of the Mama You're Not Broken audiobook. Today we're talking anger, rage, fury. So many parents, especially mothers, tell me they never felt the same white hot anger before they had kids as they do now. A few mums have written to me and said they skipped straight to this chapter and others have told me they've given this one to their partners to read because it gave words to the experience they couldn't properly describe to get the message through. We cover mental health, theories around maternal anger, making amends with our kids after an outburst and take a new look at anger through the lens of opportunity. I recognise this episode is to be released when many parents are in lockdown and do not have the same support systems and tools for self-regulation available to them as when this book was originally written. So take the bits that resonate and leave the bits that don't. Enjoy. Before we start this chapter, I just want to remind you that you can order a physical copy of this book and also see a full reference list at www.annacusack.com.au slash book. You can also head to www.annacusack.com.au to check out the ways we can work together. I offer mentoring via video call, voice messaging support for all things preparing for motherhood, motherhood itself and parenting and host a women's circle, writing workshop or similar special event online each month. When lockdowns are done and dusted for good, I hope to take my work on the road, collaborating with some wonderful women and individuals along the east coast of Australia, so do watch this space. If you love my content here or on social media, I invite you to give back to this podcast by becoming a patron of the show for $5 a month. Again, head to www.annacusack.com .com.au slash podcast to get involved. Let's get started. Anger. My husband is an exceptional father. For the most part, we have a good parenting relationship that is better than I could have hoped for. We have huge respect for the ways we each provide for and care for our family. That said, and I mean this in the nicest way possible, There are still days I want to scratch his eyeballs out. Before our daughter was born, I would sleep through anything. Massive storms? Not aware. Fire alarms? No biggie, unless there was a real fire, in which case I would have been stuffed. My husband, on the other hand, would wake to the sound of the reversing alarm on a truck at the mine entrance three kilometres away. This is not an exaggeration. One night he got out of bed and drove to the worksite gate to confirm that this was actually the noise keeping him awake before coming back home to bed. I had no idea he had even left. In some kind of sliding doors moment, our nighttime noise recognition skills switched the second our daughter was born into the world. The smallest wriggle, grunt or mouthing noises from her tiny body would wake me. I was on such alert that I would have my boob in her mouth every two or three hours overnight before she even had a chance to cry. Meanwhile, my husband and his useless nipples slept peacefully beside us, another victim to the yet-to-be-discovered new dad sleep hormone so many of my friends agree must exist. After a few unwise, that was a pretty good night, huh? Dad comments. We quickly established that if he wanted to survive beyond breakfast time, neither of us would pass comment on the quality of the night before. Even the most supportive partner remains the walking, talking billboard of the freedoms the at-home mum used to enjoy. 
freedom to leave and return to the house without reference to when the baby last fed or defecated, to wear clothes that remain clean for more than 20 minutes, to exercise without pelvic pain or fear of their organs prolapsing. The way modern Western society is structured means dads can dream of a career trajectory uninterrupted by parenthood, yet as mum, you may have precious little time and freedom for even an uninterrupted shower. This may not be your partner's fault, but heaven forbid he stops by the pub on his way home from work or you'll probably be tempted to tear him a new one when he steps through the front door. I realise these are sweeping and stereotyped generalisations based on a heteronormative nuclear family model and do not apply to many families in our modern landscape. Still, I would ask that if you find an exhausted mother who is totally at peace with every element of her family dynamics to please contact me and I might just give you both a medal. Before we go too far here, I want to make a note on mothers and mental health. Rage can be a symptom of postnatal depression, and addressing mental ill health can be hugely beneficial in getting unrelenting explosive anger under control. That said, the experience of anger doesn't mean that you automatically have postnatal depression. It doesn't mean that you are a bad mum. And it definitely, definitely doesn't mean that you are faulty or broken, although some clinicians may make you feel that way. Sometimes mothers disclose feeling angry to their personal support crew or medical team and are pathologized without further investigation. Over and over again, I meet mums who have reached out to their doctors for help and instead been given scripts for antidepressants and a pat on the head. This is a tragic outcome when what they were seeking was validation, psychological support to unpack their feelings and practical help to reduce overwhelm, not labels and pills. On the other hand, I know plenty of mums who have experienced depression with anger as a major presenting symptom and been brushed off. The general message they are given is, that's just the way it is when you're a mum. You'll just have to try harder with the self-care so you don't explode. Either way, we are let down by a male-defined social framework and medical system within it that is undeniably uncomfortable with emotions, particularly maternal anger. For most mums, anger occurs during our kids' babyhood and beyond and is a near universal experience with kids of every age group. At age 28, Melissa and her husband welcomed Brody, their 15-year-old foster son with extensive history of trauma, into their home. There have been many big angry explosions since that time and while we have seen vast leaps in maturity, their path together has not been and will possibly never be a completely smooth and easy one. Mel and I joke that despite the massive age gap between our children, one of the main things we have in common is that we are the garbage bin for our kids' big feelings. As mothers, we are their safe place to land. I'm confident that every mother who has had educators tell them how mild-mannered their children are at school or daycare, yet bears the brunt of the meltdowns of the century when they get home, will resonate with that sentiment. On one occasion, our little family were staying the night with another couple and their toddler. The girls had largely gotten on quite well. There had been the standard accidental bumping one another over and non-verbal, no, that's my shoe and you just took my food moments. At bedtime, my charming little cherub was wriggly and agitated. Suddenly she stopped feeding, crawled up to my eye level and instead of kissing me goodnight as usual, slapped me across the face four times. She sighed heavily, all tension left her body, 
and she promptly went to sleep. Although it's a lovely compliment to be so loved and trusted, being physically hurt by our kids can see feelings of anger bubbling to the surface. In fact, being hurt in any way by anyone can without a doubt see us feeling angry. So can doing every possible thing for a newborn and still being screamed at for hours, being peppered with the same word 10 times at increasing volume and levels of distress by a toddler, and living with the relentless demands of mothering young children without inherent community support. Throw in all the other factors we spoke about last chapter and you've got a cocktail for feeling furious. Enter 2020 and we were asked to do this in lockdown for weeks and months on end, possibly while also working from home. Ah, what do you want from me? I could hear Ashley next door yelling in her backyard. The shouts quickly crumpled to sobs. I can't do this. I looked over the fence and saw her sitting, head in hands, on her back step. There were older children set up at different play areas around the yard, a fruit platter out for them to snack on as they pleased, and a screaming toddler clawing at her legs. She picked him up, wiping away tears with one hand, while he smushed banana into her hair. Are you alright? I called. We locked eyes and she walked away from me. It took some lengthy reassurance for her to come back. I offered to sit with her little one and watch the big ones for a while so she could have some time out. No, no, I'm fine, really. He's just such a challenge. Big feelings at this age, you know. Oh, you must think I'm such a bad mum for yelling like that, but I'm okay now. Better get back to work. Oh, oh goodness, I hope I was on mute. She checked her reflection in the window, tied her bananary hair up and popped on her headset to rejoin her work Zoom call. Despite her feelings of guilt, Ashley was nowhere near being a so-called bad mum. She was a woman tasked with working a double shift of unpaid caregiving and paid work simultaneously, day after night after day. Who wouldn't lose their cool in a completely unreasonable situation, one with seemingly no end in sight? In her article, Mother Rage, Theory and Practice, Feminist writer Anne Lamott explores why mothers can appear so level-headed one minute, then lash out at their kids the next. Over the course of the day, Lamott suggests, we internalise the anger we feel towards the adults who we feel disrespect or overburden us, like our partners, managers or mothers-in-law. With adults, we are more likely to cop it on the chin rather than risk our jobs, relationships or reputations with angry outbursts. This strategy comes at a cost. Each time we suppress our anger, our fuse gets shorter and we get closer to an explosion. Eventually, it comes to night time and our children act as though the plate of vegetables we are offering them is poison, scream blue murder when we go to brush their teeth or just will not go to sleep and we explode. This outburst seems to come out of nowhere, but it's the result of the frustration that has been building up across the day. This is added to the overwhelm, lack of support and chronic sleep deprivation that has been building over weeks, months and years. Modern mothers are like simmering volcanoes and our kids, bless them, give us that final push to erupt. Mount Vesuvius aside, how is it that our darling children, the same ones we'd willingly lay down our lives for, always know the perfect ways to push our buttons, sending us into an almighty anger-fueled shitstorm? There are many schools of thought out there, but here are a few ideas. 
In infancy, it is entirely likely our little loves don't know they are making us want to bash our heads against the wall at all. Author, IBCLC and all-around baby care extraordinaire Pinky McKay teaches parents that babies and young children simply do not have the brain power to be manipulative. The empathy, impulse control and hypothetical, critical and rational thinking required for a child to be cunning or controlling, she explains, doesn't arise until well beyond the toddler years. With this in mind, it is not a baby's fault for only having the brain development to cry in response to fear or a preschooler's fault that their emotional regulation is so underdeveloped that tantrums arise from what we grown-ups may see as the most minuscule non-issue. Some children may be more emotionally volatile or sensitive to change than others, but that doesn't mean they are purposefully manipulative either. American paediatrician Dr. W. Thomas Boyce tenderly refers to these children as orchids. In short, it's more likely that your child is having a hard time rather than purposefully giving you a hard time. Another perfect button pusher theory is that kids set us up to feel the emotions we need to process but are doing our best to mask or ignore. When our kids sense we are hiding anger towards something or someone else below a fake smile, they will push and prod and niggle at us until we let the anger out. This concept, introduced by the creator of the aware parenting approach, Aletha Salter, extends to include the idea that whatever emotion we try to repress, our children will do their best to express on our behalf. Perhaps this theory will resonate with you if you've seen your usually chilled out child start misbehaving when catching up with extended family members you find challenging or lashing out at your partner or ex, almost as if they were giving them the serve you wish you could. A third perspective is that our children are so good at making us angry because they reflect to us the parts of ourselves we don't like or the parts of us that other people have subconsciously made us feel ashamed of. Just as our kids are our shadows in a physical sense, the suggestion here is that they also embody the shadow parts of ourselves and our psyches. Two of the stories I have had planted in my head over my lifetime are that I am too opinionated and talk too much. I find my daughter's strong-willed nature, bossiness, and verbosity, really stopping to draw breath, very triggering, while other things like throwing food on the floor or covering her clothes in mud are hardly a blip on my radar. Other parents who have been told they are lazy or uncoordinated or are self-conscious about their weight or fitness level may find that they feel frustrated or defeated when their child wants to watch other kids play instead of joining in with their games. If we take this theory on board, we can use anger as a cue to revisit our own histories. Rather than reliving our past pains vicariously through our kids, we have the chance to speak kindly to our inner child. This can give us an opportunity to heal our own wounds, essentially reparenting ourselves while parenting the little people physically in front of us. Perhaps one or all of those theories struck a chord with you, or perhaps none did. Regardless, I do not believe that it is possible to be a mum and never feel angry. If not for our children, partners and close contacts, there is always someone ready to step in and fill the void with an unsolicited comment to grind your gears. Why don't you just calm down is always a cracker. Another of my personal favourites is when my toddler is popping on and off the boob like a yo-yo and someone says, ah, you're just feeding her for your own benefit now. 
oh, mate, I think to myself, you have no idea what it is like to attempt to teach a toddler nursing manners or the internal wrestle happening within me. Do I, A, assertively educate you regarding the effort, resources and persistence it takes to meet the World Health Organization's recommendations on breastfeeding until two years and beyond in a country that is terrified of sexualized tits? B, kung fu your ass in 0.01 of a second or... C. Smile serenely and remind myself that such comments are nearly always a reflection of the person's own issues, not mine. Social media can be another source of angst. Every single image of a magazine-worthy, colour-coordinated playroom, while your lounge room looks like something out of a before infomercial segment, could be enough for anger to peak. Side note, a digital detox over traditional holiday periods, like Christmas, is a very sound mama anger management strategy. Don't even get me started on the hatred that may rain down on whoever dares to belittle, tease or discipline your child against your wishes. Anger is usually but not always a precursor to rage. Losing our cool is the result of a physiological process inside the brain, one that Dr Daniel Siegel and Tina Payne Bryson, PhD, describe as flipping your lid. If you're not familiar with Dr. Siegel's hand model of the brain, I'd recommend doing yourself a favor and taking a few minutes to hop online and watch one of his videos explaining it. Basically, the brain is comprised of different sections that perform different functions. Some parts look after survival functions like breathing and heartbeat. Others look after emotional regulation and survival mechanisms like our flight, fight, freeze, or fawn responses to threat. Our rational or thinking parts of the brain wrap around these more primitive brain structures and help to regulate them. When we are pushed beyond our limits, perhaps because of chronic overwhelm, a one-off trigger or a combination of those, our brain short circuits. The thinking brain becomes disconnected from the emotional and survival centres in response to the perceived threat and we can lash out in a way that may scare our children and even ourselves. This may look like yelling or throwing something or even being physically violent, like hitting. The brain short-circuiting phenomenon is the reason why child development resources and websites constantly remind us not to shake our babies. It is also one of the reasons it's so useful to have an emergency code word in place to use when we see rage rising in ourselves or our co-parent, allowing us to sub in and out of caregiving immediately before anyone gets hurt. If no one else is present, using a strategy like placing children in a cot or safe place while you step out of the room and take some deep breaths is perfect. Allow yourself to cry, phone a friend, have a glass of water or generally collect yourself before you re-enter the room. Giving yourself space to breathe before erupting is a show of love, not a sign of weak will or failure. I don't mean to excuse violence towards children, or anyone for that matter, by suggesting that our brains make us behave irrationally. From where I stand, the evidence is clear that physical violence, including smacking or spanking as a form of discipline, worsens children's mental health and increases aggression and antisocial behaviour, none of which are conducive to intellectual or emotional development. In the words of trauma-informed parenting coach and social worker Caroline Ellen, we all have a right to feel safe all the time and kids are no exception. All I am doing is explaining the process and giving you the background as to why crisis strategies should be in place before a crisis arises. As my husband likes to say, buy a toilet plunger before you need a toilet plunger.
That said, I have known this stuff a long time and I am not immune to outbursts. Truth be told, I am lucky that my daughter doesn't have the F sound figured out yet after one particularly difficult wrestle into the car seat this week. On her evolutionary parenting blog, Tracy Castles, PhD, describes her own car altercations with her two-year-old daughter, who, like most two-year-olds, wants to climb into the car and up into her seat all by herself. As the school pickup deadline looms, Tracy becomes angry and her little girl becomes hysterical. As they drive towards the school, Tracy's daughter tells her that she felt sad and scared because of her mum's yelling. Cue mum guilt of the highest order and a teaching opportunity for modelling how to repair a fractured relationship. How can we do this in a way that is both effective and meaningful? Tracy recounts how, after a verbal outburst, she stepped away from the car and took a few deep breaths. In doing so, she was prioritising her child's physical safety and calming her own nervous system. When the dust had settled on the acute event and her daughter told Tracy how the yelling made her feel, Tracy admitted her wrongdoing and apologised for her behaviour. After arriving home, Tracy set out to reconnect with her daughter in ways that felt good for her child, like talking and playing together, rather than instructing her to just get over it. Had this scenario played out when her daughter was five years old instead of two, they may have been able to brainstorm, pardon the pun, some things that they could do to avoid either person reaching a tipping point in future. These steps may not be groundbreaking for you, but there is an important detail left out. When her daughter didn't accept her apology, Tracy didn't push the point. Tracy and Dr. Siegel agree that this point is key. Asking our kids to forgive us positions them as being responsible for our emotional state, which is an unfair burden to carry. Feeling anger does not mean you will experience explosive rage, although most of us will feel some degree of relationship disconnect at one point or another in our mothering journey. As much as it would be lovely to just accept that anger is normal and move on guilt-free, it's not that easy. Not many of us have been taught to listen to our bodies for clues that anger is coming. In fact, I would argue that in many respects, women have been trained out of listening to their bodies, for example, in relation to hunger or need for rest over successive generations. Not many of us have been stretched as thin or felt as tired as we do now as mothers, right at the time we need to be unlearning old ways and putting new emotional regulation skills into practice. When we look at the world around us, anger is supposed to be for men. On hearing the word angry, I think of brutish male warriors screaming as they run towards one another on the battlefield, overpaid male footballers tackling and punching one another, or painful male politicians calling each other stupid names instead of making significant positive legislative changes. While these aren't necessarily constructive uses of anger either, girls and women aren't really given any kind of model or scaffold on how to do angry at all. Instead, we feel overwhelmed, get frustrated and irritated, then feel guilty for being angry. This loop keeps mums running on the hamster wheel, telling ourselves, if only we worked harder at being good mums, we wouldn't be angry or feel guilty afterwards anymore. It's all lies. If we disentangle anger from guilt, 
we free up the momentum it provides to become a force for good. We can channel our angry energy into action that reduces our overwhelm, creating changes in our lives that challenge the patriarchal construction of motherhood. In a nutshell, we do not need to wish away our anger. We need to learn how to harness it. Okay, mamas, repeat after me. Anger does good things for me. Firstly, it shows us where our edges are. At times, when the mother-child unit is so interconnected, it is a reminder that our kids are indeed separate people from us and that we all have separate needs. As I write this chapter, my daughter is 19 months old. For those of you who haven't reached this stage yet, let me warn you that an intense phase of daytime clinginess Nighttime sleep disturbance and teething accompanies this time of incredible advancements in motor skills, understanding and language. There is only so much you can do when a child is yelling, hug, 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 and you are already hugging them. With her needs for closeness, reassurance and security in mind, let me now overlay one of mine. I value alone time highly. Stillness. Silence space for my own thoughts and creativity. Without it, I become a caged lion, picking at edges and ready to roar at any second. I get irritable, short-tempered, angry, and I remember that my needs are not being met. Secondly, rising anger spurs me to act now rather than waiting until after an explosive outburst. I can put strategies like deep breathing into action. I imagine grounding myself and do my best to get out of my head by becoming aware of the sensations that are arising in my body. If I feel my jaw clenching, I try to start singing loudly and doing a silly, stomping, spinning dance about what is happening rather than yelling. The energy moves through me. My daughter usually starts giggling and the moment is defused. It is my attempt to self-regulate to calm myself and reconnect with her before escalating to the point of rapture. Recognising anger rising in my body also buys me time to seek immediate help. This help might be changing up our environment, like putting a sprinkler out on in the garden for her to run through, or getting into the bath together. It might be putting out an emergency call to a friend to come over ASAP, or deciding to get pizza delivered that night so I don't lose my marbles at her climbing up my legs while I'm slicing vegetables. Thirdly, because anger is uncomfortable and potentially dangerous if left unchecked, it motivates us to make changes in our lives and personal stories so that we can feel better for the longer term. This is where the mainstream narrative of self-care and being personally responsible for filling our cup so that we can be better mothers, falls short. Band-aid strategies like going to get a once-off massage can work wonders for a day or two and definitely have their place. Unless we go a step further, however, by rearranging our lives as much as is possible to get our needs met on a consistent basis, we will inevitably hit anger all over again. For me right now, this means setting boundaries around rough physical touch, learning about attachment play, and adding paid childcare to our existing circle of support. It looks like revisiting the division of family admin tasks with my husband so I don't feel like I'm juggling so many balls at once, moving my body and checking in with my counsellor. Together, these give me space to breathe, 
think and regroup. When our circumstances have changed and these strategies are no longer working, overwhelm and anger will again be the things that tell me it's time for a shake-up. Finally, anger is the thing that sparks change that is bigger than ourselves. This, more than feeling out of control, may be why anger can feel so frightening. It reminds us of our power to, to enact change if we rise, individually and collectively. And change is scary. Do you think women would have won the right to vote if no one got angry about it? Do you think that marriage equality reform would have passed in Australia if no one agitated for it? As women and mothers, we have legitimate reasons to be angry with the societal structures that we live within. The maternity system is actually fucked. The work of mothers is so economically devalued that thousands of women are faced with the choice of financial security and domestic violence or homelessness and poverty for themselves and their children. We are given all the responsibility to raise our children, yet are undercut time and time again when we seek to do so in a way that is best for ourselves and our families. Without anger, we stay silent, complicit to the mythical perfect mother's whispers about our inadequacy. When anger boils up, it signals there is a change brewing, one that can only happen if we direct anger into action rather than letting it subside into guilt and shame. Maybe you want to join a maternal health advocacy organisation. Maybe you want to reject the idea that good mums cope alone and start a shared care arrangement with other families in your area. Stepping outside the normal image of mothering to build a modern version of mums and their babies under trees as your day-to-day -day reality. Maybe you want to share your real life rather than your carefully curated one on social media. Maybe you want to fully explore your desires and creative potential and have your kids see this modelled as the most natural thing in the world. Maybe you want to challenge intergenerational fuckwittery of government welfare policy by lobbying parliament. Heck, maybe you want to be in parliament. Anger isn't all bad, mama. Rather than making us scream, anger is screaming at us to change something, to make this life better for ourselves and for our kids. We just need to be brave enough to listen to it. I dare you to own your angry, your brazenness, your bold. Listen to the fire in your heart. Set alight the things that no longer serve you and leave them to burn. From these ashes, we rebuild motherhood. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast. Please remember to subscribe and leave a five-star review and share with anyone you feel may benefit from this content. If you'd like to continue the conversation, join me on social media at Anna Cusack Postpartum and head to my website www.annacusack.com.au to check out the ways we can work together. Please use the contact form on the website to inquire about having me run workshops with your client groups or book me for corporate speaking or professional development presentations. See you next episode.